0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org.
1: Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose, the executive director at the Long Now Foundation. Um, I just wanted to update. uh, all of you on, um, on a bit on the funding for this program as well as uh, the funding for our other programs. Um, but uh, luckily just yesterday, thanks to uh, the most recent sponsorship by Cameo Wood as well as renewal from Peter Bauman who's here tonight, uh, we crossed over the 500,000 threshold for the interval funding and, uh, and for this program as well. So thank you all. It has been a a long road to get here. Um, How many people have been to the Interval over in Fort Mason? Nice. Awesome. Will the rest of you go? We are, we're doing more uh, speaking series, uh, another speaking series there on Tuesday evenings. And I think we have the next three or four Tuesdays already booked out with some really, uh, really amazing talks uh, and book launches for, I think the next one is The Future Declassified with uh, Matthew Burroughs. And uh, after that, Ariel Waldman on Citizen, uh, The Futures of Citizen Space. Uh, It ought to be really fun. Uh, The... Other thing that, uh, of course, in the tradition of all good Kickstarters, we, we now have stretch goals. Um, and uh, the, the, thing that, the things we haven't paid for yet are our robots. Uh, we have two robots, so one uh, that has already been built in Switzerland that's going to be drawing on the, that can draw on the chalkboard, and one that can make bespoke gins out of uh, 15 ingredients. So if you take the juniper out of that, that's 14 ingredients. So 14 factorial, I think, is a different gin each day for 238 million years. Um, so you have that long to get there uh, before you run out of, of interesting gins. Uh, Tonight's long-short, as many of you know, we do a short film about long-term thinking before a lot of these. And uh, Andrew in our office suggested the other type of synthetic biology, uh, uh, some sculptural work done by Theo Janssen. And I had a chance to meet him a while ago, and he was nice enough to unearth some of the very best uh, archival footage of his Strandbeast work. And we found this uh, other archival interview by Romero, Uh, And the sound quality is not great, but the content for tonight's talk is dead on, so we're including it. Enjoy.
2: My name is Theo Janssen, and I work since 22 years, I try to make new forms of life, and these forms of life are not based on protein, like the existing forms of life. But I base my my basic material is this plastic tubing, which we use in Holland for cables in houses. At the beginning was that I used PVC because it was cheap and so available. I noticed that, while making it, how beautiful it became. How willing the material is, as you notice, if you heat it, you can do anything with it. You can make pistons of it. So it's really a new building, construction material of life, just like protein. So I tried to make everything of this plastic tube. And then that became sort of animals which could walk. And these animals, they don't have to eat, they get their energy from the wind. And I want them to live on the beaches in Holland. My project is not only about uh, life in general, it's also more or less about my own life. And I was born almost on the beach. From my room I could look over the sea, and I spent my youth a lot on this beach. So at the beginning of my life, I uh, and still I, I live on the beach. So I'm, it's also my personal life which plays a role in this. Life itself gives me inspiration. I'm very surprised, like, well, we all are surprised that we are here, I guess. I am surprised every day that I exist. I wonder where it all came from. So I studied the evolution theory, and that, so Darwin could give me, is my inspirator. Our social structure is based on the social structure of animals. We have lots of habits which come from the monkeys. Also, I feel that I'm a a monkey. I'm just an animal with all my strange habits. I try to solve the secrets of life. I know I won't solve anything, but at least you can solve some secrets to, to have more insight in how it all came, that we are here. The strange thing of these animals, they seduce humanity somehow. So they seduce humanity to take care of them. So I hope that once you and I are gone, that our children and grandchildren will take care of the strange.
0: Stuart Brand. Um, They say it's supposed to be a biological century. Um, The last century was, we were hearing it was going to be a digital century and that turned out to be the case. But what happens with these things when we name a technology is going to be dominant. People start focusing on the technology and that's what gets the news. But if you want to know where the technology is going, and if you, want to, if you want to affect where the technology is going, don't focus on the technology. Focus on the people. Especially focused on the youngest of the people who are either interested in the technology or might become interested in the technology. And if you watch what they're doing, especially in the pre-commercial world, in the, where people are just trying stuff, trying things that appeal to them. is before there's customers, before there's manufacturing, it's just trying stuff. Then you'll know where the technology is going. And if you want to engage where the technology is going, you engage with those people. That's Drew Endy's strategy, and he's here to talk about it. Drew.
3: I agree with Stuart and so I found a video online today to answer this question and I'd like to share it with you for a few minutes.
0: I'm Swati, and I'm the team leader for the Cornell University Genetically Engineered Machines team. We're an undergraduate, student-run team that uses synthetic biology as a platform to
1: develop innovative new tools to help with the many needs of industry, the environment, and the economy. Each year, we compete at iGEM, an international synthetic biology competition in which over 200 teams from across the globe participate. Each team presents a novel project in the field of synthetic biology to a panel of judges after doing several months of research with a wide range of applications. In 2012, we constructed a field-deployable biosensor, SafeVet, to detect arsenic in wastewater. This project placed in the top 16 internationally and was awarded best solution to an oil sands problem from the Canadian Oil Sands Leadership Initiative. In 2011, Colonel Aijin developed a self-free method of synthesizing complex biomolecules called a biofactory that won the best manufacturing award at the international competition.
2: We were inspired to work with fungi by
1: Ecovative, a company in upstate New York that produces a biodegradable styrofoam substitute from fungi such as Ganoderma.
2: According to the Environmental Protection Agency,
1: styrofoam takes 500 years to degrade and generates over 50 hazardous chemical byproducts, making disposal
3: a difficult and costly task. The EPA has identified styrofoam as the fifth largest creator of waste. Currently, the material is banned in over 200
2: cities across America. This list of locations will soon include New York City and the state of Massachusetts.
1: We're working with the Chinese medicinal mushroom Ganoderma lucidum. No iGen team before has worked with a mushroom, and even in the overall scientific literature, there's very little work genetically modifying mushrooms. So this year, what we'll be doing is building a toolkit of genetic parts to make genetically modifying mushrooms in the future much easier.
3: There are hundreds of these videos. You can find them online on YouTube and where you wish. And what's happening here is you have self-organized, distributed teams of students around the world deciding that they'd like to partner with biology to make something, to solve a problem as they conceive it, wherever they are. They come together through this activity called iGEM, International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. And if you decide to do that, here's how it works. In the spring, You register to participate in the competition. In 2013, there were over 200 teams participating. Those teams prepare to do work during the summer when they're not in class as a full-time research activity or entrepreneurial activity, if you will. To help them with their work, they're sent a distribution or collection of biobrick parts, thousands of pieces of DNA that had been made by students in previous year's competitions and shared, if you will, via give and get philosophy, philosophy run by the iGEM Foundation. You get the parts, you work on what you want, maybe you make some new parts, maybe you'll give those parts back for the next year's competition. In the meantime, when the fall starts to show up, hopefully you've done something, hopefully you have something to show for it, hopefully it even works, and you prepare to come to the jamboree which this year will be held uh, at the end of October in Massachusetts, and you can see what all the other teams did and compete for prizes. So that's iGEM. It's run by this organization, public benefit charity spun out of MIT, directed by Randy Redberg and operated by Megan Lizarazzo. You can see they're supporting collegiate teams now, high school teams, and so on and so forth. Why does this exist? This is important because it gives you the framing for where the people came from and where the people might be going. And I don't want to represent that I know where things are going, but I want to give you the history so you can see where the uncertainty might lie. We've got this planet that we're part of, and it's got some biology on it. (laughs) If you're familiar with the catalog, there's a whole Earth genome. Maybe it's about 10 to the 35th base pairs of DNA. George Church thinks it's a little bit more. Nobody's really counted. Um, But what's interesting about this number is, if you think about our capacity to sequence DNA, this century, we should be able to sequence every base of DNA on the planet. This material is associated with systems that are capable of processing matter, living matter, to make a diversity of things. Sometimes it's natural, sometimes it's directed by humans. This is the explicit weaving of the rubber plant roots to make double-decker suspension bridges that grow in place in India. How could we, as people, partner better with biology to make stuff? One struggle is when we look at natural biological systems, they're hard to figure out. This is the sequence of a genome of a bacterial virus, 40,000 base pairs of DNA, Could you tell me how it works? (laughs) This is the schematic of an electrical circuit. Unlike most human-designed electrical circuits, this electrical circuit has been evolved by a genetic program, a computational algorithm mimicking evolution. I went into an electrical engineering professor's office at MIT, Jerry Sussman's office, and I asked him, could you please help me to reverse engineer this? I thought if I could learn how to reverse engineer simpler systems, electrical systems, that might help me to reverse engineer natural genetic systems that have also been evolved. And Jerry took a look at this. The first thing he complained about was the quality of the printout wasn't very good. (laughs) And then he said, you know, I'm not quite sure. Where did you get this from? Who designed this? And I said, nobody designed this. This was evolved by John Koza working on his genetic programming platforms, and at this point he said, get the hell out of my office, (laughs) which was atypical for, for my interactions with Jerry. I said, why is that, Jerry? And he says, well, you know, this thing wasn't optimized to be easy for me to understand, let alone explain it to you. Why do evolved Systems look the way they do? How do they work? What does this do? Well, this one apparently takes the square root of an input voltage. What if natural biological systems are hard to understand because they weren't optimized by evolution to be easy to understand? Maybe we want to think about making things. One of the best biophysicists in the world is Mike Elowitz, now at Caltech. And he was one of the first people to begin to turn the corner and put together the molecules of life, sort of the Humpty Dumpty problem, uh, to make new things. His famous repressilator, which is a type of oscillator operating inside bacteria. Uh, this movie made over a decade ago. This was the beginning of a a sort of sense that we could think about systematically engineering integrated genetic systems and get them to work. Now it's very messy, it's barely working, but you can begin to imagine getting good at this. Nevertheless, Mike's the best, it turns out, and it took him years to get this simple thing to work. If I was an electrical engineer, I'd go get a 14 pin out hex inverter and have a ring oscillator working in a few minutes. You know, another project uh, that's uh, state-of-the-art, if you will, is to approach a disease like malaria and say, maybe we could make this drug, artemisinin, for curing malaria, not in a plant that takes a long time to grow, but perhaps we could reprogram the metabolism of yeast to do it. Right? Some of these folks are in the room tonight. This was done at Berkeley and in Emeryville, at UC and Amherst and so on. You know The thing of it was, it cost about $25 million of R&D, and that paid for over 100 million Person years of PhD level expertise to retune this baker's yeast metabolism to make this chemical. And you might say, that's not so bad to make a drug for treating a bad disease like malaria, except that resistance to this drug is occurring, so we can anticipate needing to do this project again and again and again and again. And I bet we could come up with the money, but what's really going to be hard is actually keeping the team together, because it's so difficult to do the work. These types of biotech projects are Herculean. All of this is the landscape in which iGEM gets started. We don't understand the natural systems, they don't appear to be optimized to be engineerable, and when we do biotech projects, it's crazy hard. I can keep going. You know, what could I imagine doing with biotechnology? Well, I'm gonna posit we haven't even gotten very good at that. If I have an object like this in my front yard, what's it good for? It grows pine cones. In Menlo Park, we grow 500 pounds per person per year of garden clippings, which come off the plants and go into the compost heap and boom. But in a town of 32,000 citizens, that's 16 million pounds of matter compiled from the atmosphere every year. 16 million pounds of matter is quite a lot of self-assembling nanotechnology. Uh, <laughs> as an engineer, I do nothing with that. If the world's chip supply is a billion chips per year and each processor weighs a gram, that's about two million pounds or one eighth of the manufacturing capacity of Menlo Park. Maybe I could imagine growing a cash crop of computer chips on my pine tree. Take a long time, more time than I have. Um, Maybe there's a different way to do it. But you see what I mean? We haven't imagined what most of biology might make in part because it's too hard still. Why is it still hard? Pop quiz. Not many people are working to make it easy. Business or politics are cultural systems select for solving problems right away and not making it easier. It could be actually physically impossible to get good at engineering biology. The damn stuff could be too hard to work with. It's so different. Some are a combination of the above, something else, I don't know. Well, let me give you my anecdotal evidence. Before my time, there was a paper published by the president of MIT talking about, let's start a new major in biological engineering at MIT. This is 1939. It's just a few years after the Rockefeller Foundation started investing in physicists and others working in biology. This leads to molecular biology and genetics. Um, damn it. This didn't get started. So when I was at MIT, we weren't preparing to celebrate the 70th anniversary of a successful program. Hmm. How about out west? Well, Cal started a program in bioengineering. This is the textbook from the Introduction to Bioengineering course offered by the faculty at Cal. Um, When we were starting things up at MIT, I said, why don't I take this book and steal the solution for the undergraduate major, since they've already figured out that's what good engineers will do if the problem's already solved. You reuse the solution. I started reading the book. I didn't have to read very far. In the third sentence of the preface, it reads, when we talk about bioengineering here, we're going to exclude genetic engineering, that is, systematically changing phenotypes by changing genotypes, as a declarative non sequitur that's not further revisited. (laughs) Maybe, maybe most of, there's a good book, there's lots of good things, you know, medical imaging, x-rays, artificial joints, right? Things you would want are in this book, but not genetic engineering. This is decades after San Francisco helped invent genetic engineering, by the way. it Wasn't any better at Stanford. Maybe the engineers haven't been working on it. How about politics? Well, I'm going to submit for consideration that biotechnology is a technology of last resort. If we could solve problems, if I could cure a disease you have with nuts and bolts, or some type of technology that I know how to use reliably, I'd do it. It's going to be cheap, it's going to work. When I go to solve problems with biotechnology, they're sort of my last chance to solve the problem. Cure the disease right away. Make the drop in biofuel yesterday. Fix the environment. Do something desperate. Um, For example, I found myself testifying before the Energy and Commerce Commission in the House uh, and the ranking Republican, the Honorable Joe Barton from Texas. What would he want? What would be his miracle application of us biotechnologists? What would a politician want? Oil? Oil. Money. Money. Votes. Could you engineer a genome that would predispose folks to vote Republican? (laughs) It's a smart question. And then maybe, remember that third option, perhaps it's physically impossible to take living matter and make it engineerable in the way we're familiar with. Right, this stuff. Right? It's different. It's actually just different. I've got self-mixing molecular systems. It's kind of like this weird, goopy jello, and that's because there's atomic-scale thermal noise. Schrodinger was totally freaked out about that. These things copy themselves. Right? It's not like these objects here, which we have to make a replacement object directly copy itself. That's incredible, and when you look inside them, it's not like we're stamping out the same features, you know, the transistor over and over and over again a billion times. Almost every molecule is different or could be modified or combined with other molecules in other ways so that things are just qualitatively distinct. The heterogeneity and complexity is beyond what we're familiar with, and oh, by the way, if you actually make any incremental progress in the uh, the affirmative in response to this question, everybody freaks out. (laughs) Maybe it's impossible. This is the context that sets up iGEM, all right? Even though we have huge successes in the initial deployment of genetic engineering and huge controversy, we don't have a lot of systematic engagement within the educational or research universities around this puzzle of could we make living matter fully programmable or fully engineerable? What would that even mean? Um, DARPA, commissioned us, this is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the agency in response to Sputnik, uh, established to prevent technical surprise, and now their mission is to create and prevent technical surprise. They commissioned, us, <laughs> they commissioned us to explore this question of, could you make biology easy to engineer and how would you do it? And you can find the full briefing I gave to the director of DARPA in October of 2003 here. This resulted from 18 months of study with the smartest people we could find to think about this question. How could you make biology more engineerable? Carl Pabo, uh, here in the room, was one of the biologists uh, brought to the table. Um, Another person we brought to the table was Lynn Conway, not a biologist, an electrical engineer. Lynn was responsible for the VLSI electronics revolution in the 1970s, working with Carver Mead. When you talk to Lynn about electronics and how we got better at engineering electronics, the one thing she said that hit us over and over and over again was two words together. Go meta. Don't think about making one thing easier. Think about making the process of engineering easier for whatever it is you're trying to work with. Now, this is the course that she ran in 1978, where she brought students together at MIT to get access to silicon wafer fab through new tools that made it easier for people who weren't associated with the fab itself to design electrical systems that could then be built and have a good chance of working on the fab line. So we worked and worked and worked, and we came up with three recommendations, and I'll make it simple for you. We focused on this cycle, the core of the engineering cycle. No matter what type of engineer you are or what you're working with, Once you figure out your intent, what your goal is, you've got to design something, you've got to build it, you've got to test it, you've got to debug it, and go around the cycle over and over and over again. And so we asked, how could we get better at this for living matter? And we said three things. Number one, get better at printing DNA, DNA synthesis, so that you could separate design from construction. Somebody was an expert architect for this wonderful space, somebody else was an expert builder to make the space, and they specialized in design and construction. Let's do that for biotech. Let's develop standards, as you'll see later, that result in coordination of labor, enabling people to share. That's gonna become essential. And then uh, we'll borrow this idea from computer programming called abstraction. Could we organize functions in a way that will allow us to manage biocomplexity? So you go back and read what we wrote in 2003. We said these three things. Separate design and fab FAB with synthesis, coordinate labor with standards, and manage complexity with abstraction. I think it's important to write things down so you can hold yourself accountable to what you were thinking. So then what? Well, 2003 was a tricky time to propose getting better at engineering biology. In the United States, we're operating in a security regime. Uh, We had the anthrax attacks just 24 months previously. Uh, There's not a lot of um, uh, great expertise or familiarity with biosecurity at the time and perhaps even still today. And so the briefing and everything that might normally lead to systematic public programs in doing this, just the opposite. These things went over like a lead balloon. We went back to campus, we tried to figure out what to do, and we observed something. Although we didn't have a lot of money, what we had a lot of was students. (laughs) They were a renewable resource. (laughs) And it's interesting, you've got to imagine being a teenager matriculating at a top engineering university, and the university is representing to you that you could potentially earn a degree in biological engineering. If you're a teenager, it's the 21st century. What do you expect to learn? All you have to do is listen. And the students would say things like, I would like to cure diseases. I would like to make the environment better. You go, fine, fine, everybody wants to do that. Why biological engineering? And then they would say, well, I think you could teach me how to design living organisms. If I'm an electrical engineer, you teach me how to design and build a computer Surely, a biological engineer could teach me how to design a life form. And Spore, the video game was out, coming out or something. It made sense. And then I want to debug existing programs, right? So, that, you teach me something about that. This is what the renewable resource is presenting. created a big problem. We didn't really know how to teach that. And maybe we still don't know how to teach that perfectly well. That's absolutely true. And so we were faced with this question, do we go away for 50 years, or however long it takes, and figure everything out, and then come back and teach, or do we admit to our students, we don't know how to teach this, but it's important to learn, and maybe we could work together? We took the second approach. one of the reasons we were able to do that is MIT had a, 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 and still does, has this wonderful activity called IAP. There's a fall semester, and that ends in December, and then the spring semester doesn't start till February. What the hell happens in January? Whatever anybody wants. Some people go to Hawaii, but most people stay where it's cold, right? And anybody can offer a class on anything. So we decided, Tom, Jerry, Randy, and me, to offer a class on blinkers. We're going to engineer genetic blinkers. And we had went and talked with Lynn Conway. How did she do it with the silicon? And Okay, well, it's going to be essential that we don't spend any time in the laboratory. We're only going to allow the students to design genetic oscillators. That's it. And then we'll pay somebody else to build and test them. Now, there was a really nice gene synthesis company at the time in Bothell, Washington, started by an MIT alumni, John Mulligan. It was called Blue Heron and they gave us the low, low price of printing student DNA of $4 a base pair. And I was able to raise $80,000, and that was enough to pay for 20,000 base pairs of DNA printing for the student designs. So we said, okay, we can do this. We got some students. Remember, for later, that lady sitting right off left-center in the middle. We ran into a problem When the students finished their design work, instead of adding up to 20,000 base pairs of DNA, the designs added up to 30,000 bases of DNA. It was going to cost me 120 kilobucks or $120,000 to print the DNA, $40,000 I did not have. Tom Knight, here, in his earlier career as an electrical engineer, had come up with something that allowed us to solve this problem, idempotent vector design for standard assembly of biobricks. This is Tom's invention of the idea of standard biological parts, or biobrick parts. And with hindsight, you know, it's a technology of a decade ago, it's not perfectly modern. But for the time, it was absolutely radical. It was a way of organizing genetic objects such that the simple operation of combining one object with another object was the same for any two objects you wanted to put together. And once you put two objects together, it resulted in a composite object that could be treated like any other object. That's what idempotent means. The operation produced something you could reuse in the same operation. And this had to do with restriction sites and the boundaries around DNA. And there's lots of problems with it, but damn, it was better than nothing. And what that meant was when this other guy, Randy, observed Tom's invention and our budget problem, he then made a leap. He said, you know, that team over there with their oscillator design, they need a DNA binding protein to blah, 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 but I don't know what that is, because he's the guy who did TCP IP a long, long time ago in the butterfly processor. He just, I just know that that thing, that piece of DNA they need over there, that's the same piece of DNA this other team needs. If only there was some way for them to share the part, we'd only have to build it once. And we just have to get the people to cooperate. We have to get the people to coordinate labor and share. And so Randy said, hey everybody, I have plenty of numbers. And he started handing out numbers for people's different DNA widgets and then we looked up which numbers encoded the same stuff, and that resulted in cost savings. Instead of $120,000 of the DNA printer, it was $57,000. I was now $13,000 under budget. We hit the print button, and guess what? It took me six weeks to hit the print button, because there is no print button in 2003. I have to manually cut and paste each sequence of DNA into some horrific web form and then it wants me to triple check it and each time the sequence is coming back at me as raw text and it's just T-A-A-T-A-C-G-A-C-T-C-A-C-T-A-T-A, I'm like, I hope I got it right because it's $4 a bi- every letter is $4. <laughs> it took me six weeks to hit the print button. It took six months for the DNA to come back. It's because we broke the factory, the things the students were designing, they couldn't build half of them. We had to debug that. Whew. Another decision. What do we do? We decided, who cares? Let's just teach the class again. We're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> it was really an important decision, right, because it's October. We taught the class in January. It's now October. we just gotten all the DNA back. We weren't going to have time to test anything. So we tied, decided to teach it again. And this time, instead of blinkers, we call it polka-docs. And I found uh, earlier today the actual um, advertisement we put up around the campus. Tired of evolving? Make new friends, right? <laughs> come, come work with us. Right? And we got some more students, see the students? We got four, four more students, we got 20 students. Now, I have to point out something here. Initially, iGEM is in part motivated, what will become iGEM is in part motivated by learning by building. You you know, we're, we're of a time where we're learning about biology over the last century by taking it apart and seeing what the parts are, but we can also learn by building and tinkering, right? And there's something important about that as a complementary scientific approach. But there's another thing happening here, which is play, frivolity. In the context of culture, If if I were to begin a different conversation saying how many people are totally satisfied with how biotechnology has gone to market? Our culture of biotechnology, the politics of biotechnology, do we have it right? And this way of thinking here, man the player, woman the player, is a way of maybe reminding us that if we want to get to the biotechnology we wish for, maybe we have to play uh, and create culture associated with that first. I mentioned that in passing. Remember, this next iteration was polka dots. Well, that was a lot of fun. And so we didn't even wait another year. Now, importantly, we got all the DNA built within a month. We had actually solved that problem. We had learned it was right to iterate and keep going. And so we didn't even wait another year. That summer, we said, let's have some friends and have fun with our friends. So we got five schools together, and it was called the 2004 Synthetic Biology Competition. And those two folks up in the front there, now faculty, but at the time students, they got something to work. Not just that they built it, they got something working. They made uh, photosensitive photosensitive E. coli, so you could take photographs in plates of bacteria. And they had a nature paper associated with that. So we had a 20% success rate in terms of projects. (laughs) That was cool. And so it happened again. And Randy Redberg, the fellow who had plenty of numbers, taught us that if you're filling a vacuum, and we were filling a vacuum, the vacuum we were filling was nobody was offering a postmodern curriculum in genetic engineering. You had a world of people, young people, who understand that life has already taken over the planet. It's a nanotechnology that actually works. And geez, if we could only get a little bit better at engineering it, we could make things. Um, But nobody was helping them on-ramp into that space, let alone acknowledging that we're still, even though there's all these experts and Nobel laureates and this and the other thing, we're still kind of bad at doing this, so maybe we should work together. That just, there was a market for that. You didn't need an advertising budget to get to that market, you just had to be honest. So 13 teams came, the next year 40 teams came, and Randy just drove the expansion of this by being correct. the students in 2006 became self aware. <laughs> they made a world map of where they were coming from so that they could figure out who wasn't having fun with them. Southern hemisphere is underrepresented, China's missing. Students travel. The students in China then invited us, hey, why don't you come to Tianjin, give us a primer. So here are the top six universities in China begging us to spend a weekend with them. Uh, How could they participate? Uh, Five of them showed up the next year. The team from PQU won the competition, got a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, got a little bit bigger. This is the biggest auditorium at MIT, so I won't show you for now the next photos. What are some of the challenges? What happens with our students? This is gonna result in the challenge of the world we wish for versus the world as it exists. So it's hard to quantify this. Rob Carlson, the physicist, has been tracking the numbers more than anybody I know, and he represents, and now the White House represents, because they're using Rob's numbers, that 40 years after the invention of genetic engineering, domestically, genetically engineered products on our markets add up to 2% of our economy. It's coarse-grained into foods, medicines, and stuff. Stuff meaning things like the enzymes in your soap to make better soap. Um, And it's been growing. This is a technology, economically, that didn't exist in this product category a generation ago. Well, our students feed into this. The iGEM alumni, if you will, feed into this. Is it what we wish for? think about it differently. Here are sectors that our civilization demands. If I unpack one of these sectors, chemicals and materials, this is a representation from the Department of Energy, how we make the things our civilization manufactures and consumes, typically on the left starting from fossil feedstocks, uh, petroleum, gas, and so on, and then through all the intermediate chemical processing steps to get to stuff like this. Right? Where does all this stuff come from? Right? We have to make things at scale. Uh, they also propose refactoring the entire material supply chain for our civilization so that the left end is not fossil biology but agile, sustainable biology, the living plant material that we might grow season after season and what that would look like to begin to work through that. This sets the context for what people who learn how to engineer biology are gonna encounter when they graduate. So remember that lady sitting in the front of the 2003 class? That's her there. She's the president of this company, Ginkgo Bioworks. This is half her team. Uh, They work in Boston and they represent themselves as the organism company. People will tell them, I wish I had an organism that does this and then they'll beaver away and make that organism and give them that organism. That's their business, right? Locally with Amaris, we see examples of making artemisinin for treating malaria but also making biofuels and other compounds with engineered yeast uh, like shown here. We know that when we scale up biological production, sometimes things go a little bit out of whack. This is the sailing location for the Chinese Olympics, the Beijing Olympics, where where you have contaminants coming off the land into the water and a resultant bloom of a photosynthetic organism. From John Hoekstra at World Wildlife, we know that when we deploy biology at scale to make stuff, we have to actually use land to grow the biology. And John represents to me that we have 24% of the land like what's shown here on the left. This is land capable of growing plants that's not now under significant human cultivation. The rest of the land that can grow plants, we're already tinkering with. So if you want to think about refactoring the material supply chain for civilization on top of a sustainable biobased manufacturing platform, you're going to have to figure out where to fit it in. Right. Do you fit it in by pushing down the 24% or do you fit it in by changing our environmental and energy loads? And who's going to figure that out? DuPont, right? another example, a $60 billion company. They have six products on the market now that make money via genetic engineering. Their intention is to shed their entire petrochemical manufacturing industry and go entirely bio-based manufacturing. Um, That's their strategy for their third century of corporate uh, livelihood. This shown here is an indication of what they're wondering about. What they're wondering about turns out to be cultural and political freedom to operate. How do we possibly get the manufacturing capacity our civilization demands on a sustainable bio-based footprint? How do we make that okay? Can we even make that okay? They know that they're dealing with what they call the snowflake on the tip of the iceberg when they think about what they make with biology today. So how does this relate to iGEM? Let me try and make the connection. This is an example of an iGEM project that worked. Uh, The students in Cambridge, England in 2009 were dissatisfied with the dull brown color of E. coli. And so they ran a project they called Chromi. They were able to, with $25,000 in capital, with 10 teenagers in 16 weeks, engineer seven biosynthetic pathways making the pigments shown here, from red on the left to purple on the right. How did they do it? Half the DNA parts they needed to make these biosynthetic pathways they got for free at the start of the summer from the previous student's work in the iGEM Biobricks collection. The other half of the DNA they may needed, which was custom, hadn't been done before, was printed for them by DNA 2.0 in Menlo Park, because the founder and president of DNA 2.0 was a graduate of Cambridge, gave them a good deal. Okay, what would you do with living pigments? They didn't know. They were nerding out, right, in the lab so much, but at least they recognized that they didn't know. And so they decided to get help. And the help in this case came from the Royal College of Art, where they went to talk with the designers, the people whose job it is to imagine products that people don't know they want. Wouldn't it be neat if I had a probiotic yogurt that was instrumented with genetically encoded sensors that could go into my gut. If I'm healthy, what comes out of me is the normal brown color. But if I'm, if I'm out of whack, you, you laugh, but this is going to be better than a colonoscopy. If I'm out of whack in some way, what comes out will be colored, indicating the disease specialist I should go see. Right? The designers called this the Scatalog. Um, now, you'll notice that there's a number here next to the brand name. The brand name's gonna have to change. The number is 2049. This is the year the designers in London thought we would be ready, culturally. Technology, we could probably get to this much faster. Right? Huh. See how there's a little bit of a mismatch between food. Stuff in medicine and mm, what we might imagine. To explore this, coming out of iGEM, we decided to commission a project called Synthetic Aesthetics, where we basically got a quarter million dollars and used that to spend, uh, support an artist spending a month in a laboratory and the biotechnologist then reciprocating and spending a month in the studio to just see what else might be out there. And I'll show you real quickly one of those six experiences. Sisal Talas, shown here, is a perfumer, Uh, perfume from Berlin, and she worked with Christina Agapakis, then a microbiologist at Harvard. Sissel shows up and she says, you know, as a perfumer, I'm actually very excited about the smells of cheese. What are you excited about in the world of microbiology? Well, at the time, and of our time still, what's very exciting in microbiology is what's called the human microbiome, the fact that there are so many microbes on us and inside us, and they are part of us. Well, okay, let's talk about cheese. Cheese has microbes in it, and there's a great cheese shop next to Harvard called Formagio's with their own aging cave and whatnot. So they went there in the first week of their residency, and they pulled core samples of the stinkiest cheeses and brought that back into the laboratory in test tubes, and they started streaking out the cheese samples to see what microbes grew and to do determinative bacteriology on all these cheese microbes. But because they're in a microbiology lab, and the microbiology lab is excited about the human microbiome, pretty quickly they have this conversation to Christina and Cecil. and the conversation goes like, hmm, some of these cheeses are small batch artisanal cheeses. They're made by human beings who have hands and who work manually with the material, and on their hands is skin, and on the skin is microbes, and there's microbes in the cheese, and what is the relationship between the cheese microbiome and the human microbiome? Now, if you didn't have this tinkering culture, Right? You'd probably take a scientific approach of sequence everything and then use the computers to line up the patterns and you declare what the relationship is. But tinkerers are going to do things a little bit differently. They're going to say, well, mm, we don't know, so let's tinker. Let's go around the Harvard campus and collect samples from our colleagues' skin of microbes. Let's go to the farm and get raw goat milk. Let's inoculate 48 bottles with samples, and then grow some cheese. This all, happens, this all happens within weeks. So I was passing through Boston when they brought out the tray of the 48 different cheeses and we had not thought about safety, so we didn't eat the cheese, but we, we smelled them. And I can remember still to this day that Daisy's armpit cheese is beautiful. It is a citrus floral bouquet that is quite stunning. Um, philosopher Tochis, you need to invent a new adjective to describe, to describe how wrong it is. Um, what does this have to do with people and, and what we might wish for? My mom said growing up to finish my green vegetables, you know, treat my body as a temple, I am what I eat. This project reversed that for me. It said, we eat what we are. I was having dinner that night with a banker from Fidelity Um, And I thought I'd ruin his appetite by relating the story. And he had, perhaps with hindsight, predictably, uh, just the opposite. He said, billion-dollar market. (laughs) Celebrity cheese. (laughs) I I believe President Obama was here uh, recently. You could have a political fundraising cheese. You could have a blue cheese for the Democrats. And, And so on. Well, let's bring this back to iGEM, another iGEM project. These students were fine with the color of E. coli, they didn't like its bouquet. So they ran a project called eau de (laughs) coli. Fecal odor of E. coli can be correlated with indole. They can knock out biosynthesis of indole. They can then add in genes and controllers that lead to, while the cells are growing, biosynthesis of methyl salicylate, which gives you a wintergreen bouquet. And then when the cells are in stationary phase, it's a stationary, fixed, saturated culture, Uh, smells like islamyl acetate or bananas. They got that working one summer. What would you do with that? How does that change this? What's shown here is how our civilization works in part, implied. right? We have centralized manufacturing from petrol and plant chemicals of this object, which is then physically transported, and then people take it and they pour it on, and represent, hopefully, that we smell okay to each other. Um, How about instead, I have a website called iFumes, iFumes will allow me to download DNA sequences for 99 cents. The DNA sequences encode the biosynthetic pathways to make odorants. I fab that DNA wherever I am locally with my DNA printer. Remember, we want to separate design and fab. And then I slather that DNA onto my epidermal ecosystem, getting programmable perfumes. Still need Brad, (laughs) need a big, bigger marketing budget, need to address issues of safety backwards and forwards in ways that haven't really been dealt with yet. Huh. See how we might change material supply chains? See how we might remove transportation costs? Right? uh, It's interesting to think about. So one of the things behind this, which is powering iGEM, is this idea of standards. Technical standards that enable coordination or exploitation of labor, depending on how they're deployed. And I, I introduced this to you formally here from an ancient example, the aqueduct in Segovia, Spain where 2,000 years ago, people were able to coordinate labor to make this improbable artifact. Note that the artifact, the aqueduct, is made from stone, but the stone is not stone found in its native form in the countryside, it's been regularized. And the regularization enables people to coordinate work in the quarry and the building site, to coordinate work over a long period of time. We could fix this even today. And if you can coordinate labor, you enable things that seem impossible for individuals to become quite possible. So the impact of standards, if we can make them come true on engineering living matter, are a big deal. It creates a type of community that allows for many things to happen, otherwise totally impossible. Tech standards underlying iGEM. This is part of synthetic biology. There's four things. How you physically organize DNA to put it together. Tom Knight's original Biobricks standards is a fine example. There are many other... Um, But just putting things together isn't what it's mostly about. You want the things, when you put them together, to behave as you expect. This is called functional composition, standards for functional composition. How you measure things. Does anybody know how long the Golden Gate Bridge is? In miles? What's a mile? Well, we know. What's a kilometer? We know. How about a smoot? Some of you will know, but most won't, right? So we need to coordinate how we measure stuff and we need to coordinate how we represent things so that we can share information. This turns out to be hugely controversial within the technical community. If you're a professional researcher working at a company or in a university trying to get funding to work on standard biological parts as this is playing out, tough, really tough. There's no such thing as a standard biological part because in biology, everything is context-dependent. You change the environment, the biology will adapt. You put things together in a novel combination, the biology will adapt, it'll be different. This idea that you're going to be able to type in a sequence of DNA or reuse a part basically and predict what's never going to come true. And then other more detailed claims like ribosome binding sites. These are the control elements that allow you to print out a protein inside a cell. The idea that you're going to reuse these, the iGEM students are going to reuse them with different proteins, they're not going to behave the same. These statements are from really smart people, well-intentioned people, who are making these statements on the basis of a lot of good reasons. I don't have time to go into what's happened since in great detail, um, but I'll I'll give you a sense of how things have been pacing. So for example, if I wanna do something like this in my research laboratory at Stanford, take a piece of DNA and flip it, and flip it back. And I'm just gonna need to express, print out three genes inside a cell just three genes, you know, if I could do this, I'd have something like a one, if it's pointing that way in the genome, or a zero. So this would be like a digital data register, a zero, one register in the chromosome. When I set out to do that, it took us three years. It took us 750 attempts, 750 different DNA designs to get cells that were zero or could be switched to one, or could stay one, or switch back to zero, and so on. So this idea that the biobrick parts are going to work perfectly well, that they're like Legos, mm. the critics are, are, are in a strong position when this starts. It turns out that the biggest problem around making standard biological parts, in my experience, was getting money to make standard <laughs> biological parts. <laughs> Adam Arkin and I wrote a paper in 1999 asking for money to make a collection of standard biological parts. And we kept writing and kept writing and kept writing. And in 2009, 10 years later, we were funded. And so as a joint project between Stanford and Cal, we ran the BioFab pilot in Emeryville, California. And we showed that, in fact, you could make standard parts for printing out genes inside cells. And these examples that people had used as you can never get reliable functional composition working, they're wrong. Now, we haven't figured this out, For everything, but we've gotten to a point where we've shown that it's not impossible to make it true. The significance of this is a big deal. So remember I said it took me three years to get good at flipping DNA? Once I get good at flipping DNA, I can black box that, I can abstract that, I can reuse that with the parts we now have working well. I can do things like this. I can flip other pieces of DNA, like this type of T symbol, which is a diode or a check valve that blocks the reading out of DNA unless I flip it. It's a type of digital switch. And I can flip it back. We call this a transcriptor. And as soon as we had our DNA flippers, we didn't know we were working on this, but we had our flippers that worked really well, and we put it together in new ways. And, and then, you know, we said, what do we do with that? And, and we just started looking, and we found this guy from Cork, Ireland in the 1850s. And, you know, he was thinking about stuff like language, and how come we have these words like and and or. And it, the reason we have these words is because the words like and and or are useful. If it's snowing or raining, wear my jacket. Um, And so useful are these words that we implement the equivalent of these words in any material we can engineer. I happen to be working at a point in time where I engineer in biology, so I'm going to take Mr. Boole, Boolean logic, and put that inside a chromosome, and all of a sudden I have a Boolean AND gate. I flip the first object, and I flip the second object, and that's an AND. And we made all of Mr. Boole's logic, and we made it from these standard parts and flippers that took us a decade to get funded. And, you know, every time we made one of these systems with our best available technology. The DNA designs worked the first time. Took us eight weeks, 12 weeks to do the research, took us 20 weeks to publish a paper. First time I ever had off-the-shelf parts working. That's 2013. Okay, well back to the iGEM community. They're not stupid, right? They're going, we need to coordinate measurement, so let's get our meter sticks going. NIST is now finally, through the Department of Commerce, coming on and developing the metrology platforms for doing this. Uh, Very recently, a big consortium of people published a paper on how to share information. They call it the synthetic biology open language uh, platform. I would say 80 to 90% of the people doing this type of work are now iGEM graduates, if you will, because they've had the experience of coordination of labor and of sharing. Let me zoom out a step further and try and put this in a broader context. Forty years ago, genetic engineering was invented, cut and paste DNA, PCR comes uh, around the same time, and sequencing comes. These are the core tools of genetic engineering. What iGEM represents, going back a decade now, is let's keep improving our capacity to navigate the design-build test cycle. If we can sustain incremental improvements, our ability to design-build test living systems, over time we'll get geometrically better at engineering life. We've done it with other material, we're going to do it with living matter. The tools are synthesis for separating design and construction, abstraction for managing complexity, standards for coordination of labor, and most importantly, let's not stop. I don't know what the other big categories will be, but this is what you see embedded within iGEM thus far. The reason this is important is it poses many challenges. I have no clue uh, what the answers might be or where they lead to. And to introduce them, I'll, I'll invoke Bill Joy. So Bill is reported to have said the following. No matter who you are, most people work for somebody else. That's the simple version of Joy's Law. That turns out to be true. iGEM's an example of this, and it's almost more true than I can imagine in biology and biotechnology. For example, most of the smartest biologists aren't gonna work for me. This is relevant because most of biology is not yet discovered. This century, we will discover much of biology still. Most bioengineers are gonna tune up the gizmos I need. They don't work for me either. The implicit question in Joy's Law is, so what do you do about it? At Sun Microsystems, the answer was, in part, invent Java so that indirectly all software programmers could work for Sun. That was interesting at the time. Um, Well, if other people are discovering them and refining the stuff, most of the parts I want to use are going to be owned by somebody else. Most of the needs and opportunities for what I could make with biology somewhere else. Biology is very interesting because it's a distributed manufacturing platform. We have a civilization that has a lot of centralized manufacturing. But think about the bread machines, the yogurt cultures, right, the breweries. Who controls all of that? Well, mostly won't be you, even if you're DuPont. Most of the biomanufacturing capacity will be under somebody else's control. Most of the problems you're going to cause are going to hurt somebody else. Most of the bioterrorists are going to work for somebody else, right? To go back to what we were wrestling with a decade ago. And I'm sure you could come up with many other examples of permutations or variants of choice law. So how do we see this develop in a way that benefits all people on the planet? When I was applying for a job at MIT, we knew we wanted to get our students engaged with doing this work, but we didn't know the best way to do it. So If you pull my file, what I proposed doing was starting a student competition called Phage Wars. (laughs) Bacterial viruses would be engineered by students to compete with other student-engineered bacterial viruses. This was at the time where you had robot battles on TV. It would trigger a very strong adolescent response. It'd be fun, it'd be easy to judge, you'd add all the different designs to a reactor, you'd go out for dinner, you'd come back the next day and you'd measure who has the highest population. Um, well, uh, you know, good thing we didn't go live with that. We, we <laughs> consciously, <laughs> consciously, for two reasons. One, it prescribes what people might work on, which is a big mistake. It doesn't have empathy and allow people to develop the things they want to develop for whatever's relevant to them. Um, but also, it's, it's sort of, is it constructive, right? Is it, is it the type of culture we want to set in motion? Um, and so here's a, a, just an ensemble of questions we wonder about. You know, who's going to lead biosafety? Not practice biosafety, but figure out how biosafety works. What's the plan for biosecurity in a world where somebody might intentionally misapply uh, the tools of biotechnology? Remember, we shut down our offensive biological weapons program in 1970 during Nixon administration, just before genetic engineering was invented. Hmm. How much could we make, right? We've got the land use issues. How much can we make with biology? How do we balance private and public wealth? Who gets to choose what's worked on? Uh, how do we make this not just be about industrializing life? I don't want to replace the jungle. I want to enable humanity and nature to flourish together. Uh, How do we work on any of this? And uh, very naively, here's my uh, assessment of degree of difficulty of of these sorts of questions. You know who has the best answers to these questions? Nobody has good answers. But the best answers are going to come from the iGEM teams, not only because they've been thinking about it in real time, but because they're uh, collectively a constructive community that approaches these questions in a positive way to begin with. So you know, keeping things safe. In case you don't know it, our our biosafety framework is coming up on being 40 years old. It was worked out by folks like Maxine Singer, David Baltimore, Paul Berg, and others down in Pacific Grove, Uh, and it's fantastic. But if you look on plots like this, and you just sort of do the time goes by, that's where these folks are, and this is iGEM. Who's going to lead biosafety? Or? Who owns all this stuff? All right? So for me, I have a lot of biotechnology I'd like to see come true. I can't do it all. I need to enable many people. I would like free-to-use language for programming life, and I'm going to work backwards from a future where that already exists. The reason I take that position is I look at things like in software, where we've got a whole bunch of deployed systems, and I see this bottom-left plot. Twelve of the fifteen most-used computer programming languages are apparently now free-to-use. They weren't all developed that way, but apparently it's true now. So, I'm going to posit languages are under positive selection to become free to use if they're going to survive. I want a language for programming life, language is, I might as well just start from that end point and work backwards and figure out how to make it. I need a, a dictionary of genetically encoded functions where the uses are free to use, I need a grammar for composing them. And to a first approximation, I'm going to call this GOOP, which stands for Genetic Operations, and programs, and I'm going to want this for an organism that eats sugar, an organism that eats methane, an organism that eats sawdust, an organism that eats light, and also a commensal that lives with us. I'll start with that. Well, maybe iGEM's pioneering this, and in fact, they are. They have their registry of parts that they're giving and getting freely. For example, this team in Melbourne, Australia, made one of my favorite biobricks ever, the gas vesicle polycystronic gene, It's adapted from a soil microbe that lives in the dirt. It's uh, just over 6,000 base pairs long. And uh, this piece of natural DNA self-assembles when expressed into the cytoplasm, not consistent here. The balloons are actually inside the cell and fills these balloons with gas. And if you make very few of the balloons inside your cell, the cell will sink in liquid. But if you make a lot, it'll float. It'll be buoyant. So within this collection of iGEM-associated parts, you have tens of thousands of gizmos. Who owns all of them? We don't know. We don't even know. We're not gonna look, because we can't afford to find out. We're just gonna wait until somebody complains and sends a note. And then what we'll do is we'll delete the part sort of like a takedown. But we're doing this in legal limbo without the equivalent of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which among other things has this carrier exemption for intermediaries redistributing stuff. We don't have any of that for biotech. You know, we're bootstrapping, we're doing things like through the Biobricks Foundation, creating public agreements with the same lawyers who did the GPL with Stallman, Uh, but we can't use copyright, and so we use types of bilateral contracts, and so far, we've gotten 19 things out of limbo and free to use. Some wonderful wonderful stuff here, like all that logic stuff we gave away, but my favorite is the fluorescent proteins, the things that make uh, light inside cells, which are the core of our meter stick engine for measurement. DNA 2.0, a company, gave those away. There's a lot more work to do, and I'll end with a couple slides giving you a sense of how People coming from iGEM are now influencing other institutions. If you were to go all over the world to the top 200 research universities and ask, do you have a program in genetic engineering that's appropriate for the 21st century, most people would point to an iGEM team and the legacy of the iGEM team. If the students, when they go back, can't find a faculty member, oftentimes to advise them, they'll oftentimes go to the provost and say, you need to hire somebody, right? If you look at the most interesting companies to me, now operating in biotechnology, coming through Y Combinator and other programs, these are the companies that aren't yet making a lot of money, but they have the transactions right around sharing and specifying what to make and then partnering with business-to-business networks. They're coming out of the iGEM graduates. At Stanford, uh, shown here, just a couple months ago, we've completed our first bioengineering building. It's the first time in 10 years I've worked in a building with the word bioengineering on the outside. And the whole first floor of this building is set up as an iGEM studio. I retired from iGEM about five years ago so I could work on this and I could work on what might become iGEM 2.0. The iGEM tech platform is a decade old. Think about running a software competition on the software tools of a decade ago. Hmm. We've got a lot of work to do. If you want to learn more, I would strongly encourage you to make your way to Boston, Massachusetts for Halloween. At the Heinz Convention Center, the big civic convention center, there will be the giant jamboree celebrating the 10th year of iGEM. They're expecting 2,500, 3,000 students talking about what they're doing, what they're vibrating about. We know biology can make a lot of stuff. We're not yet very good at partnering with biology to make things, and the culture of biotechnology is far from perfect in the public sphere. How do we figure it out? Playing and making go together. We've shown it's not impossible to make biology easier to engineer, and though I agree regarding predictions, if you were to ask the engineering community what do we imagine our legacy to be for this century, it seems likely that that legacy is we're making living matter engineerable. The secret is to get better and better and better at navigating that process of design-build-test. Oh, by the way, it won't all work, so we'll learn about life by tinkering and playing. Why do this? Well, if we pull it off right, we enable all constructive biotech. Not in a top-down, controlled way, but in a grassroots, distributed, organic way, ironically. And if that's done correctly, we have a chance of renewing our civilization in partnership with nature, enabling both to flourish. And hopefully you remember that synthetic aesthetics example. It's not just the nerd rapture, right? This is creative design, this is ethics, this is the enlightenment. Thanks very much. Look forward to conversation with you and Stuart.
2: Bob
0: Kopik asks, what could possibly go wrong when high school students are making new life at home?
3: (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. They're under strong negative selection to not do things wrong.
0: What do you mean negative selection? What's the negative selection?
3: um, They all
0: die when they do it wrong? That's right. (laughs)
3: <laughs> so there's a cover of the uh, Boston uh, newspaper in 1977, uh, right at the time when I believe it Cambridge, Cambridge City Council had outlawed genetic engineering. And uh, the, the newspaper cover said, botulism soup, it had a mock-up of a Campbell soup can and on the label it said, recombinant DNA. Mm-hmm. And then in that magazine, they had instructions for how to clone the toxin gene in your kitchen, and you'd have the soup.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: What's interesting is, to my knowledge, nobody did that. Now, that's because either nobody did it, or those people were under negative selection. <laughs> <laughs> either way, it's self So, but, but importantly, I think it's because nobody did it. Right? I don't want to be naive no. about it, but, but um, you know, we do have a topic of biosecurity. Biosafety is a topic of culture. We can handle it imperfectly, but well enough. And we're going to have to take some risks to do anything. So it's okay.
0: Might as well have the stupid die off, right? You said that. (laughs) (laughs) The real puzzle to me, Drew, is that coming up on 10 years, uh, biotech is big news, big money. But iGym has been... The least reported tectonic phenomenon I know of, and it's like it's almost shunned as uh, by media and by you know sort of the general public, um, as, as if they don't want to think about it. Or I don't know what's going on. I mean, they, you know, they'll finally catch on, and the Burning Man is amazing. And, you know, word gets out and pretty soon there's a a lot of attention being paid to that one. And we'll have a talk from Larry Harvey pretty shortly telling a similar story to yours, I think. But iGEM, still huge as it is, global as it is, feels like some closely kept secret. What's Uh, going on? Yes
3: and no. Okay. Um, How was the computer network being discussed in 1983? We have a biotech network emerging. It's a decade old. It's not that old. Mm. Uh, within the political and, and policy leadership, it's well-known, iGEM.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think one of the puzzles with respect to... So do to the
0: corporations show up, the governments show up? Who comes to these things? Government. Say more.
3: Um, minister willetts the late, uh, just resigned minister of universities and research in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, studied iGEM backwards and forwards and is basically directing hundreds of millions of pounds in public investment to make sure that Britain doesn't become a museum of 19th and 20th century technologies, Right, fully powering iGEM throughout the country. So you do have cases of civic leadership. He's an outlier. Uh, you, you, at least in the US, I've not found a politician who says um, part of the future will involve biotechnology. We need to figure out how to talk about genetic modification. Mm -hmm. as part of our civic life. We don't have that type of leadership here. There is another aspect though, to return to your question directly, which makes um, civic awareness of this difficult to sustain. Mm -hmm. Most of the press coverage triggers um, just an overreaction within the messaging. So a good example would be Foreign Affairs. Their issue, the last issue of 2013, Biology's Brave New World is the cover story Mm -hmm. be happy and worry, right? And then picks up on things like iGEM to say, we're going to save the world and destroy the world. Simultaneously, it's both the Rousseauian view Mm -hmm. and the Hobbesian view of the state of nature and the state of man. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing in between. I call this the the political or public messaging half pipe of doom, where you sort of get pulled (laughs) back and forth between Mm -hmm. these extremes. And the reason that's problematic is because A, it's not true, um, but, but B, it consumes all the bandwidth for communication and the more interesting conversations that build up in the middle don't happen at all. Right? So somehow we have to, when people go around saying they're creating life when they're reconstructing genomes, mm. you know, and you know, how about we just talk about what's happening? You know, and that, that's not happening because of the polarization of the, of the conversation, I would say. You see polarization in many dimensions, right? It's not just promise and peril, it's for or against. Mm-hmm. And things aren't so cleanly digital, right? And again, you have to get to the messy middle. So, so something about messaging hasn't got to that yet.
0: So the messy middle is occupied by the tinkerers, mm-hmm. by the makers and the players. But the messy middle doesn't, you're saying, get become part of the public discourse. Yeah. So what are you doing about that? Not worrying about it.
3: <laughs> well, I'm here, right? I mean, But what do you yeah. want me to do about it? Um, you know, I think, I think one of the... Go meta. The, Come on. No, well, okay. So, so you know what the meta is? Um, we give out stickers. Uh, uh, so, so we had a big problem when iGEM got bigger in that we want to g- celebrate what people are doing. We want to have fun. And so we give out prizes and prizes and prizes. And we went from... Uh, 13 teams to 40 teams. We made the mistake of running out of prizes and we only had 20 prizes. And so that meant half the teams didn't get recognized within the peer group Mm. and that felt bad. So the innovation was uh, medals. You could come to iGEM and you could earn a bronze medal, a silver medal, or a gold medal. And it's not like the Olympics in that we declared we had an infinite number of medals. Everybody was eligible for medals. But to earn a medal, you had to satisfy the requirements. Right? You had to um, design a biobrick part to earn a bronze. You had to improve or measure a biobrick part to earn a silver. You had to give back a part to earn a gold. And uh, you had to do other things for gold, like address a policy issue, right? many requirements for gold. Next thing you knew, many people wanted gold medals or stickers. And the reason that's relevant is they would then go home and we'd start after the iGEM Jamboree to follow what was coming up on the news feeds and there'd be a a, a newspaper report from Texas somewhere and they'd say, team from Texas A&M goes to MIT and earns gold medal, right? Or team from Tianjin University, earns gold medal at MIT, right? And so it was a local press coverage that seemed more interesting, right? So that that was going meta and scaling, stickers.
0: That was a good one. And so, I think the next thing is to hand out stickers or medals in those three categories to reporters, <laughs> based on the quality of do yeah. they engage the gray?
3: That's interesting.
0: And uh, do they you know go with, do they talk to an actual student or things like that. Uh, it's a good suggestion,
3: and given the fact that people are spending a lot of money to reinvent what journalism looks like, it makes sense to me. I haven't seen any of that built into Thiel's investments or the Knight program for mm-hmm. journalism. It makes good sense. We have good. to rescue Bring it that type of journalism.
0: Since it's free, I'll take 10%. Um, a version of this, Tom uh, Ilkima asks, what do you tell Tea Party people? What do you tell people who are ultra-conservative in some sense, and all of this seems really dubious. Seems dubious? Well, I don't know. Maybe that's not the word. What do they, what do they think? Back in the day, you when it was recombinant DNA, States? it was going to cause botulism. Uh-huh, there was, uh-huh. a, you know, there was a, a reaction that had this kind of quality to it. Yeah. You know, whatever you're doing, you should not do it. Uh-huh. What do you say?
3: For moral reasons? For religious reasons, for safety reasons, okay, for security had, reasons? Okay, you probably are you playing or? God? And the answer is? Uh, you know, the only time that's ever come up is when I um, went home good. for the holidays, mm-hmm. and I have um, uh, on my father's side three aunts who are mm-hmm. formidable, ladies, very smart, good bridge players, and uh, uh, devoutly religious, and they asked me, um, well, why are you doing all this? What's wrong with the DNA that God gave us? It was a good question, and, and I uh, thought about it for a little bit, and I asked them, have you looked? Hmm. Um, and uh, now
0: they want to get sequenced. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. Once people are sequenced, do they engage and, and start to feel that this is their science, not something that's... Could be. Could yeah, be. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, me too. Okay. Chris Camp wants to know, is it plausible scientifically and financially to create a caffeinated banana?
3: So you can do biosynthesis of, biosynthesis of morphine is worked out. Not morphine, caffeine. Morphine, too. Um, <laughs> different type of banana. Um, <laughs> but but um, what, I don't, what I don't know, Stuart, and, and to, the, to the question is I, I don't know how difficult it would be to get that operating in a banana. And I presume that's doable, but I, I can't—I couldn't even give you an estimate on the fly of what that would cost.
0: Okay, skip the banana. Uh, how about disintermediating poppies, which they've yep, done. It's in the news today. Yep. Uh you want to explain that and who's involved and what that it, it portends?
3: Um, conflicted. It's my wife, and uh, she has a team that's worked for a decade now on biosynthesis of uh, the alkaloid family of chemicals. Uh, it's a fancy word for things grown in opium poppies. So morphine and, and other stuff and um, uh, it's a complicated pathway of order 20 uh, steps so much more complicated than what most iGEM teams would work on mm. and they seem to have opened that up. Uh, so remember the Eau project and Brad Pitt and perfumes and thinking about rerouting material supply chains, what does it mean to do the same for basically anything made in a plant? Um, and I, I would anticipate if you want to consider the puzzle that that uh, becomes possible. Uh, within the next few decades, not just for the BIAs, the benzoyl alkaloids, but most plant natural products. Um, We don't have good tools for doing net assessments around, for example, changes in land use. Is it better or worse to grow a a poppy on a field or sugarcane in another field and then reroute stuff? And then obviously there's control around material supply chains, right? So all sorts of stuff. Um, Caffeinated yeast, I think one of an iGEM team project, uh, already done. Um, caffeinated bananas
0: are interesting, other sorts of things, you know. um, Kind of a somewhat meta question here from Connor. What is the weakest leg of the current design, build, test cycle? Measurement. Say it again? Measurement. Measurement.
3: Test. Test. Uh There's a lot of things you'd like to measure uh, inside living systems. Most of the measurement technologies we have now are destructive which means you have to grow a lot of the cells or organism up and then grind it up and put it on an instrument like a mass spec or something that basically Amazing. separates out the bits and pieces and tries to quantify it. Uh, so, so, we, you know, uh, you know um, that first apple thing that came in the wooden box from Steve and Steve, you could hook it up to a display, but imagine if you didn't even have that right? And that's kind of how we're operating. It's uh, desperately needed to basically make wetware to measure wetware so you can build in ways of quantifying what's happening inside a cell and have a cell tell you what it's doing Mm -hmm. with light. Uh, So that's why, for example, those flippers are nice. There's other types of tools for genetically encoded sensors that then transduce things into light. So test. Uh, Here's a way to quantify it. So I teach Uh, I used to teach uh, the uh, laboratory course at Stanford in the new bioengineering major. Uh, So we have sophomores. They have no prerequisites. They have to design, build, test a living system. This is how I'm prototyping iGEM 2.0. It takes us four weeks to design with the students who've never taken genetics and come up with a 3,000 base pair design. It takes us two weeks to get the DNA built at DNA 2.0 in Menlo Park. And it takes us the rest of the quarter, six weeks, to test. Hmm. And that's where most of the failure is designs, we always get to designs. 90% of our DNA is built successfully now, and 25% we get good measurements. All right. So you look at a company like Agilent, for example, mm. the legacy of Hewlett Packard, um, not coincidentally, they're shedding their hardware business, which I believe to be a mistake, uh, but they're to focus on bio-based measurement right, for their future. Um, so measurement is the hardest, in my opinion, and experience.
0: Uh, A a larger measure is sort of the one that goes along with things like Moore's Law, Mm -hmm. you know, the doubling of some named capacity every two years. Is there any equivalence like that in synthetic biology, do you think?
3: It's represented with different brands, neither well-established. Carlson curves after Rob Carlson, the Mm -hmm. tracking of the cost down and capacity increase for DNA sequencing, um, and DNA synthesis, both reading and writing of DNA improving faster than computer chips are getting better. Um, the significance of those two tools together is they make genetic material and genetic information interconvertible, right? So you can have a physical object of DNA, you can move that with sequencing the information on a network and then redesign it and remake it with synthesis somewhere else. So that's important for, um, basically remixing information location, but in this case, uh, it's important to drive distributed manufacturing. It's why iFumes is not merely a crazy fantasy. You could actually have online resources telling you what DNA sequences make what things and then have that flow as information and manufactured locally, right? So if you're if your company like DuPont, for example, to use them as, a, as an example, right, they're dealing with three large dimensions of ambiguity. Um, is the future of biotechnology gonna be accepted or not politically? Is there going to be distributed manufacturing or centralized manufacturing? And is there going to be distributed innovation or centralized innovation? And all of those are for grabs. Uh, right really? Now.
0: Centralized innovation could happen? <laughs> Sounds like it's too late, they have, thanks they have to you certain, guys.
3: They have a certain posture uh-huh. right now, which is more aligned with central.
0: Well, it's so decentralized in terms of... But but all
3: all I meant to say was, right, you know, that that cost down on read and write of DNA is what's Mm -hmm. pushing decentralization and making that more and more feasible for biotech. Uh,
0: So we got 3D printers, uh, DNA printers at home coming along soon.
3: Maybe, maybe not. Um, But in your neighborhood, uh, seems fine. Sort of like I heard, you know, we don't all need lawnmowers, but one lawnmower per neighborhood might be a good idea, I don't think everybody needs one. Um, I do like, for example, things like uh, methanotrophs. Uh, These are organisms that eat methane, in part because we have natural Mm -hmm. gas pipes coming into most of our houses, and so uh, if I had an organism that eats methane, yeast eats sugar, but what about an organism that eats methane? I could have those organisms make food. Mm -hmm. My gas goes to food, I could have those organisms make plastics Mm -hmm. for the printers, right, So, so, you know, I don't think everybody needs a DNA printer, but a, but a physical material printer, maybe. And you could do distributed manufacturing of the printer cartridges, basically, the feedstocks or the printers.
0: The salvation, supposedly, of a lot of environmental badness that goes out from our manufacturing system, the salvation is supposed to be green chemistry. Mm-hmm. With fewer solvents, lower temperatures, Better energy efficiency, all of that. Is all of this moving in the direction of greener chemistry? Yes.
3: If we do it right. Hmm? Yes, if we do it right. I mean, Joanna Eisenberg's work with the Venus flower basket sponge, when she was at Bell Labs looking at the organic biosynthesis of, of meaning biology driven biosynthesis of fiber optic cables mm-hmm. made out of silica, is happening in the ocean at environmental conditions by definition. Um, so, so, biology as a materials manufacturing platform for making abiotic objects or things like teeth, you know, but, but glasses, metals, uh, seems pretty doable. And it's why Tom Knight got into uh, biotechnology as an electrical engineer, right? So, he was, um, as an electrical engineer, looking ahead and, and saying, as our feature sizes on chips get smaller and smaller and smaller, these semiconductor materials have dopant atoms in the silicon, and we're relying on random or Poisson distribution or dispersion of the dopant atoms, that's fine so long as the average number is pretty high per, per device feature. But as, as what we're making is tinier, and tinier, and tinier, that average number goes low, which means sometimes, just by chance, what you think is a semiconductor isn't. A simpler way to think about this is making chocolate chip cookies, all right? So if you're making big chocolate chip cookies that have on average 100 chocolate chips per cookie, Mm -hmm. that means it's 100 plus or minus 10, 100 plus or minus square root of 100 chips per cookie. But if I'm making nine chips per cookie, nine chocolate chips per cookie is nine plus or minus square root of nine, or three. If I have really tiny chocolate chip cookies that have on average only one chocolate chip per cookie, it's one plus or minus square root of one, which means a third of the time, I have chocolate chip cookies with no chocolate chips. They're not (laughs) chocolate chip cookies. right, so same problem appears in in hardware engineering. Mm To solve the problem, you have to put atoms in particular locations. How do you put atoms in particular locations? Tom's conclusion was biology does that. We have to get good at partnering with biology to make hardware.
0: Is there any nanotechnology left outside of biotechnology, do you think? I mean, in in a sense, you're using biotech to make these computers, uh, the the computational stuff. Yeah. Remember, nanotech was going to change the world. Yeah. And did that just go away because it's actually all biotech?
3: No, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's a there there, but you also have to represent that the national nanotechnology initiative in the United States launched under the Clinton administration is a political activity, right? Um, uh, as much as anything else. So nanotech so,
0: gets money, biotech doesn't. What are you saying? Uh,
3: we've not yet seen the equivalent of that. I'm not arguing for that per se, but I'm just when I returned to nanotechnology, um, it was driven in a different way. It was driven in a top-down way. Hmm. with very strong political leadership. That's interesting. Um, and, and what I'm representing here is not the same.
0: Globally, I mean, the, the one thing that I think semi-spooks and delights people is that the IGM teams are not just U.S., not just U.S. and Europe, not just U.S., Europe, and Asia, but all over hell and gone. Um, how does that play out? <coughs> does it mean that, for example, that some countries will resist biotech and, and you know, uh, but it doesn't matter because other countries will have a lot of IGM students that will carry it to the frontier and then everybody else will have to c- catch one, up? How does that the, work?
3: One of the great things
0: about science in general is that hmm.
3: it's common across humanity oftentimes and uh, you know, when you're coming up as a student, you typically don't experience this. It's not till you're you know, establish that you get to go to these international meetings. And wouldn't you know it, right at this level of high school and college, we're giving people the best international community for this science. And so I think uh, one of the things iGEM students experience is they are part of a global community of people who intend to do good. And it's not that any one person knows what the right thing to do is, but you have trust among your ensemble of colleagues, your community, that people are trying to do the right thing where they are. And I think having that experience very early is hugely important. Um,
0: so what, what do the IGM students all sort of know about each other cohort by cohort? Are they all connected through the 10-year band of population now, how does that the work? IGM,
3: the IGM Foundation, you, know, you can pull their annual report Randy and Megan and the whole team there does just a heroic amount of work on a shoestring of a budget. And so, all the things you would expect to exist, right, if anything exists at all, is because somebody sweated it out, right, mm-hmm. and just made it happen. And most of this is not yet mature or fully mm-hmm. developed. Uh, so, you know, uh, where's the iGEM alumni program? Oh, well, gosh, we know we want it. We've got 20,000 of them, <laughs> right? But who's got time for that and who's helping with that? And, you know, uh, you know how about retire GEM? Mm. Right. It's one thing to be working with college students, but how about people just retired? There's a lot more of them coming. Maybe we could start iGEM teams someday, right? We could be on a team together. So, Ooh, so, I like so it. you know, um, I,
0: like yeah, I, I think
3: there's, you know, check it out. Right? It's, it's hugely impressive what they pulled off, and the fact that it exists at all is improbable, and, you know, a lot more could
0: be done. Well, it's keeping its life and keeping going. And one uh, final question from Ali Blakely. How much does science fiction of popular culture influence these young scientists? Um, Where does science fiction fit into all of this? Because we keep hearing the de-extinction, oh, there's science fiction, there's Jurassic Park, and we say, well, yes and no. And, uh, but in fact, we're able to talk about de-extinction because of Michael Crichton and uh, Steven Spielberg doing something a number of years ago. Where does science fiction play into this population and its expectations, and um, they're doing science reality, but it's pretty fantastic, so there's stories being told somewhere in there.
3: That's a good question.
0: you know, Rudy Rucker, uh-huh.
3: right? Realware, freeware. Uh-huh. Um, um, somebody we read, kind of like the idea of the moldies, uh-huh. you know, fungal manufacturing. That seems kind of, not everything he says, but okay. Um, Roger Brandt, uh, who was a mentor for a time, a huge fan of science fiction, had the biggest science fiction library I've ever seen. Uh-huh. He would organize meetings, and Greg Bear would be there. Uh-huh. You know, and uh, I remember going to Bio- Is it
0: Darwin's radio, mm-hmm. Greg Bear? Right. I
3: think so. Somebody somebody, check that, But good book. Um, I remember being in Biosphere 2 uh, with Greg, and we were taking a tour, and uh, this is the facility in Arizona where they had an enclosed environment, Earth being Biosphere 1, Biosphere 2 being this experiment to live inside a closed environment for a while. And uh, it really was enclosed, so they they have this bladder, a huge bladder for containing the atmosphere as you have expansion contraction during the... the heat load during the day cooling at night and to get to the bladder you had to walk through this semi-submerged steel tube that was maybe eight feet in diameter we're walking through it and for reasons I had no idea in the middle of this tube is this odd like ace of spades shaped keyhole that you have to step over I was walking right in front of Greg Mm -hmm. and he quips now we know what the people who l- built this facility look like. Because <laughs> they, they had to fit through this shape. You know? um, um, so, so that's been wonderful. You know, people like Rudy and Greg and you know, Blood Music and, and other stuff. I mean, we've implemented Blood Music technically in my lab now. Um, except they haven't taken over and destroyed things. Um, and which is good. And, you know, so that's all fantastic. But the flip side of this is, which is horrible, um, if you go to, and this comes back to the media representation you were asking mm-hmm. about. Now you go down Southern California and you look at what the products are that are shipping. Mm-hmm. And I say, how's the movie coverage of, of the future of biotechnology that we dream for? And imagine mm, Gattaca, mm, Contagion. Gwyneth does not do well mm-hmm. in Contagion. <laughs> and that's released, right? You laugh, but damn it, that's released on September 11th, 2011. To the day, hmm. so so you know. On the one hand, it's fantastic, but on the other hand, we don't have like a, a movie I appreciate is Contact, right? Who knows about the aliens? But at least in Contact, we have a, a plausible heroic narrative engaged with humanity. Some of the people are not great. The director of the mm. NSF in that story, mm, not such a nice guy. But Jodie Foster's character is a heroine,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and, and we don't have the storytelling for reasons I, I don't, I'm not excited about, I, I'd like to fix, I'd actually like to work on this one. We don't have the storytelling capacities thriving in the marketplace around what I'll call realistic heroic narratives that don't collapse to some egocentric maniac, right. you know, but are more representative of this reality of we've got a community. And, and we need that desperately for biotech. In the absence of that, you know, I, I, I return to people tend to try and do what we can imagine. And if we don't have the capacity to tell stories that are the positive, constructive, realistic, heroic narratives for the future of biotech, whether you like it or not, we're understanding more about the living world. That's part of our time. And we're getting incrementally better at engineering living matter. That's part of our time. So, so you can be for or against that, but,
0: but you have to help us figure out what we wish for. And it doesn't, you know, anyway. You were saying something before the talk about optimism and pessimism. you want to say that again and we'll call it a night?
3: Sure. Um, So, I had an experience as a PhD student uh, in a course uh, called Science, Technology and Society. It was four PhD students and each week a different person would come in. C. Everett Koop, just retired as Surgeon General, he'd come in and talk about healthcare. And Professor Kantrowitz, I believe it was, amazing engineer, he came in to talk to us about sustainability. And I, we were all very excited. All four of us were very... I went to do my engineering work at Dartmouth, which you think of as an undergraduate liberal arts college, but damn, it's a great place for engineering because there's no departments. It's just one school of engineering with no borders inside. Mm. And um, they just let you do whatever you want with high expectations. Um, and uh, this fellow showed up to talk about sustainability, and we were super excited. And then he, he ambushed us. He said, sustainability is is just a disaster. It's the most dangerous thing I've ever encountered. What are you talking about? There's a finite planet, and you know, life's only got 90 terawatts of juice flowing through it in terms of energy. We've gotta figure out how to make things, what do you mean? Sustainability is the responsible path. You're not hearing what I'm saying. It's very dangerous. It's the worst thing ever. Okay, what do you mean? And he said, well, my, my uh, job here today is to explain two things to you. Number one, pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Number two, optimism is a self-fulfilling
2: prophecy.
0: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.